Welcome to the Jacksonville First Seventh-day Adventist Church Podcast, where we listen, learn, and love together. Our speaker today is Pastor Jonathan Panado. What kind of man was Nebuchadnezzar? What kind of man was Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful and ruthless king. We've already seen glimpses of him in Daniel. For example, turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2 and verse 5. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 5. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 5. When you have it, let me know. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. And what he was asking them, Nebuchadnezzar couldn't even remember the dream. He just knew he had a dream. Haven't you had dreams that you don't really remember? To, you know, that, that's kind of how it was for him. He had this dream. He couldn't really remember what it was. And he was asking his astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. Mission impossible or what? And he tells him, if you don't do this, I am going to cut you in pieces. And I will turn your house into a, a pile of, of rubbish or literally the King James. And, and, and the Hebrew says, I will turn your home into a dung hill, into a latrine. That's how much power he had. Daniel chapter 3 and verse 6. Here in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 6, he says, Whoever doesn't do what I say and bow down and worship this image of gold, whoever does not fa- fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace, a fiery furnace. I mean, j- just imagine that. Cutting people into pieces, right? He-, he probably wasn't killing them first. He was killing them by cutting them in pieces. And then throwing somebody alive into a furnace. Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful and ruthless king, and there was no HR department there to keep him in check. There was no department of labor or OSHA. There was no unions that would look on, on, on your behalf. There were no human rights groups or activists. Nebuchadnezzar could basically do whatever he wanted to do. What will that kind of power do to an individual? There's another description of Babylon and the Babylonians in the book of Habakkuk. Turn in your Bible to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1. Habakkuk, chapter 1, and verse 5. The Lord responds to Habakkuk, and he says, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians. That ruthless and impetuous people. Some other translations say that that violent and cruel people. That fierce people. I am raising up the Babylonians. They sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves. And they promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Now, it's interesting that word eagle, right? 
Because do, does that, that image of an eagle pop up anywhere else in the book of Daniel? That's right. The lion in Daniel chapter 7 has wings like an eagle. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind, and they gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and they scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities by building earthen ramps. They capture them. I want you to, to notice on that little part, by, by building earthen ramps, they capture these cities. Back in those days, all cities had walls. And uh, so that when someone came against them, the city was fortified and no one could come against them. And they would make sure that they had enough food inside the city and perhaps even a water source so they could outlast whatever siege was outside of them. But no one could outlast a Babylonian siege. No city could withstand the Babylonians because they would build earthen ramps. Let me show you an example of that right now. Uh, what you're seeing on the screen there is the, the fortress of Masada. Um, that's a Jewish fortress uh, that King Herod built. And he built it so that he could have enough water and enough, enough grain to outlast whatever calamity took place. And that fortress on some of the, uh, on some of the, uh, the cliffs here, um, it's about 1,300 feet um, on some sides. Impenetrable? Impenetrable. I mean, how are you going to march up an army up, the, up this cliff, up a 1,300-foot uh, um, cliff? You can't do it. Um, they, the Romans, and, and this is actually the Romans here, the Romans actually tried, and then from the top they started throwing stones and, and, and hot water or tar or these kinds of things, and of course then the soldiers would all fall down. And so what did the Romans do? They gathered up uh, Jewish slaves, and they used these Jewish slaves, do you see this here on the side there? Do you see that there on the slide? That is an earthen ramp. That's what the Babylonians were doing, and that's what the Romans did. The Romans took Jewish slaves, and it took them six months, but they moved all that dirt before the days of bulldozers and backhoes. They used Jewish slaves to move all this dirt and build an earthen ramp that went right up to the gate of Masada. And then they just walked in and conquered uh, the fortress. Uh, this is a view of that ramp from the gate. Just, you know, just uh, you can just walk right up there. Now, of course, it's eroded because that took place in the first century. But that's what Babylon would do. No city could withstand the Babylonians. A ruthless and cruel people. In fact, it's not just all talk. Turn in your Bibles to Second Chronicles, or I have it up on the screen. This is a description of, of Nebuchadnezzar and what he would do. The king of the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, he killed their young men when he came to Jerusalem and Judah. He killed their young men with a sword in the sanctuary. And he did not spare the young men or the young women, the elderly or the infirm. Now, in modern warfare, we have certain conventions. We don't just, when we go into a country, we don't just kill everybody. We only engage those who are engaging us. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar didn't have such conventions to guard him, to guide him. He just killed everybody. Here's another example. In Jeremiah chapter 39, Zedekiah, the king that he sets up in Jerusalem, rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes against Zedekiah. He captures him there. And the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And he also killed all the nobles of Judah before his eyes. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. It's the kind of man Nebuchadnezzar was. You don't mess with Nebuchadnezzar. He kills his sons in front of him. And then he puts out his eyes. 
so that the last image that Zedekiah has is that of the slaughter of his children. And then Nebuchadnezzar doesn't even kill him. To kill him would have been mercy. He just puts out his eyes and leaves him alive so that he can live with that last memory. Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful and ruthless man. Imagine having that kind of power. What does that kind of power do to an individual? And hence our title, Pride and Arrogance. In our day, we try to do everything we can to make sure people don't have that kind of power. But yet still in our day, there are very powerful people. Whether they derive their power through wealth or through military might, the powerful in our day can basically do and say whatever they want without impunity. Isn't that right? Hence question number 18. If Nebuchadnezzar lived and ruled today, we would most likely consider him, and we could just, I mean, who knows the labels that we would come up with him, a dangerous person, a threat to liberty and freedom. You can only imagine. And yet what's surprising about this is turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 27. In Jeremiah chapter 27 and verse 5, with my great power and outstretched arm, I made the earth and its people and the animals that are in it, and I give it to anyone I please. And verse 6, and now I will give all your countries into the hands of my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. I will make even the wild animals subject to him. All nations will serve him and his son and his grandson until the time for his land comes. Then many nations and great kings will subjugate him. But notice verse 6, he says, I will give them all into the hands of my servant, Nebuchadnezzar. Now again, this is the strange thing that God is using this language. God is calling Nebuchadnezzar his servant. Remember, I asked you, if Nebuchadnezzar lived today, what kind of person would we consider him? And yet God calls him my servant. It's the same term that is used in the book of Isaiah to refer to the Messiah. My servant, Nebuchadnezzar. What is God doing here? What is God saying here? How could God possibly put such a ruthless, immoral person in power and subjugate his people to the Babylonians? And that's why God says to Habakkuk, I'm going to do something you're not even going to believe. Even if I tell you, you're not going to believe it. Sometimes the things that God does, we don't understand his ways or, or why he allows the things that he does or, or, or speci- the specific people that he places in power. We don't get it. But here the Bible calls Nebuchadnezzar my servant. How could this man possibly be God's servant? You see, God loves the leaders of the world. And God takes a special interest in them because they are leaders. And God reaches out to them and he speaks to them. God does not play favorites among the nations of this world. We play favorites. Isn't that right? We have countries who are our friends and our allies, and then we have countries who are our enemies, not for God. God doesn't play politics among the nations. We do. We malign other people. We malign other parties. We malign other countries. We malign other governments as godless and crooked. But there could not be a more crooked nation than Babylon 
And yet God says, you are my servant. God doesn't throw sanctions around to the nations or sever diplomatic relations with countries just because they don't agree with him. You see, God is not working for the spread of representational democracy as the government of choice among the nations. God is working for the spread of the everlasting gospel. And which for the end time says Babylon is fallen. Our whole human system is fallen and our whole human system is broken. And it's not going to get any better. This whole world will fail. And we will fall into moral, political, environmental, religious, educational, economic chaos. And the only hope for this world is not representational democracy. The only hope for this world is for them to fear Him and to worship Him. That is the everlasting gospel. That is what God is working for. We may have ups and downs in our economy. We may have plateaus in our economy. But the Bible tells us that it will only get worse and worse and worse. And and we see glimpses of that. We're still recovering from the recession of 2006 and 7 and 8. Isn't that right? And, And things are stable right now. But it's a sign to us to show us how fragile our world is. If something happens in another country and the rest of the world is dragged down with it. We saw that earlier this year with China. The Bible tells us that what God is doing is he's wanting us to call us out of Babylon. The system is broken and he's wanting us to look to him, to fear him, to acknowledge him and to worship him. He is the only answer to all the problems of this world. And so God loves the nations. He loves the leaders of the world, and he speaks to these leaders, and he speaks to these nations. Daniel 2 and 7 are a message to the nations. Do you remember what language Daniel 2 through 7 are written in? It's not Hebrew. It's Aramaic. It's the language of the Babylonians. It's the language of the Chaldeans. The message of Daniel 2 through 7 is a message to the nation of Babylon. The leading nations of the world, my friends, are never without a witness from God. Not just in the old times, but even in our day. Daniel in Babylon, Esther in Medo-Persia, Joseph in Egypt. And so the question comes to my mind. How is God speaking to the nations today? Who is God using to speak to this nation You see, God cares about the leaders of the world. He cares about the nations of the world. And he does not leave them without a witness. And so God reached out to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. And the purpose of Daniel chapter 2, turn your Bibles there. This is the purpose of Daniel chapter 2. Daniel's saying, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. The point of of Daniel chapter 2 is so that we can realize there is a God. It's the same message of Revelation chapter 14. Fear God, acknowledge Him. To a society that is godless, to a society that is secular, to society, our society that is agnostic and doesn't believe, we are the first generation of humans who live without any notion and and recognizing that God exists at all. All previous generations had some form of respect for the divine, whether it was pagan or superstition or for whatever it is. But in our generation, God is dead. And that is the philosophy that we function on. 
But that is the exact message that God is counteracting in Revelation 14 when he says, fear God and give him glory and worship him. It's the purpose of Daniel chapter 2, verse 28. There is a God in heaven, verse 45. After Daniel shares the interpretation and the meaning to, to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar comes down. And he says, the great God has shown the king what will take place. And verse 46, the king Nebuchadnezzar then falls prostrate before Daniel. This ruthless and cruel man. He falls prostrate before Daniel, paid honor to him in order that an offering and incense be presented to him. In verse 47, the king then said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Isn't that powerful? God spoke to the most powerful man on the world at that time. God is still speaking to the leaders. How unbelievable, how amazing that Nebuchadnezzar recognized God in his life. Now all he had to do and align his life with what he had learned. Easier said than done. And so Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 and verse 1. Sometime later, we're not sure how long. King Nebuchadnezzar makes a what? An image of gold. Now, do you notice any similarities between uh, the image of Daniel 3 and the image of Daniel 2? And the reason is because that word there used in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, to speak about the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar erected is the same word that is used in Daniel chapter 2 to describe the image that he saw in his dream. And so Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges God, but here in Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is saying something different. He's like, well, you know, he started thinking about that dream a little bit more, right? The head was made of gold and then the chest of silver. And what does that mean? His kingdom wasn't going to last. There was going to be another kingdom that was going to come after him. Nebuchadnezzar could not take that. He was filled with so much pride and hubris and arrogance that he rejects the word of the Lord. He fights against the vision. He fights against the fact that someone else will come after him. There cannot be anyone after him, he thinks. He is it. He is the sum of all. And so he's defiant of of God in Daniel chapter 3, and he erects this image entirely of gold, signifying I will last forever. I don't care what the God of heaven has revealed. My reign will never come to an end. Can you hear the the arrogance and, and, and the pride? And so Daniel's three friends are there. And they're commanded to worship. They don't bow down and worship. And, and as there always is the case, there's some snitches there. Uh, please don't be a snitch. Please don't be a tattleteller. Tattle, it never ends well with tattletellers. I, I don't know what happened with them here, but in Daniel chapter 6, the snitches ended up being thrown into the den of lions. Okay, so don't be a tattleteller. No one likes a snitch. But, but there's some who see that these three friends are not bowing down. And so they come to Nebuchadnezzar and say, Nebuchadnezzar, someone's not bowing down. And notice what it says in verse 13 when he finds out. Verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to come to them. So they were brought to him. And then, and, and then they, you know, they, they talk, and he says, what's this I hear? You need to bow down. If you don't bow down, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And he's not joking. How many of us would have the strength of character to be firm to our faith? Our life is on the line. And all we have to do is just bow down, right? You've heard the joke, right? Their, their, their sandal kind of, you know, got, got you know, they, their, their sandal got untied. And so they just, you know, 
while they just bow down and they just, you know, tie their sandal up again. No big deal. And, uh, you know, it takes them a while to get back up and, 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 and it's good. Right? They weren't bowing down. They, they were tying their shoe. How many of us would have the courage when our life is on the line? I mean, sometimes less than our life is on the line. Isn't that right? And we can't be faithful to God. We go with the crowd. With, we, we're embarrassed of, of maybe ridicule or, or whatever it is. We don't want to be different. And we go along with the crowd. But these, these gentlemen are firm to principle. And they tell Nebuchadnezzar. And they're nice to Nebuchadnezzar. And, and, and they're respectful to Nebuchadnezzar. And I think that's important. Because I think as Christians we shouldn't be rude. Uh, as Christians we should be respectful. We can be firm. We don't have to be rude, mean, or disrespectful. We can be firm, but we don't have to be mean. And respectfully, they said, we, we're not going to bow down. Um, we can't bow down. And we know that our God can deliver us. But even if he doesn't deliver us, we have to be faithful to, to God. And so immediately notice what verse 19 says. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious. Verse 19, literally in the Hebrew, it says his countenance changed. Have you ever seen someone that's so angry that their countenance just changes? You know, hopefully that's not, not you, right? But, but some other people, right? They get upset and their countenance just changes. He was furious with them. He was angry at them that someone would defy his command. Sometimes you say with little kids, right? When they don't get their way, maybe a two, three-year-old, right? When they don't get their way, what happens to their face? It's just all hell breaks loose. Isn't that right? It becomes a child of the devil. And here Nebuchadnezzar is furious that people aren't doing what he wants them to do. He's furious that people aren't going along with his ideas. Do we ever get upset and furious when people don't do what we want them to do or what we think they should do or when they don't agree with our ideas? Nebuchadnezzar in his pride and in his arrogance that he can't have what he wants becomes furious. He throws them into the fiery furnace. God delivers them in the fiery furnace. In fact, there is a fourth person who appears in the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar comes and and he looks at it and he says, that fourth individual looks like he's the son of God. Which is an Old Testament, a prelude to, to the existence of Jesus. Jesus was there. And Jesus delivers them. And after Nebuchadnezzar finds that they are okay, notice what he says in verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar approached the opening of the blazing furnace and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of who? How does he know that? He knows. He knows he's not ignorant. He knows Daniel too. He knows the God that they serve and he recognizes and he says, servants of the most high God, come out. So what's going on in Nebuchadnezzar? He knew that, that's, that's, that, that God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Why did he not acknowledge him? Why did he then erect the statue of gold defying the word of the Lord? He recognizes God one more time. He acknowledges it. Now it's time for him to align his life with what he knows. Easier said than done. And so we have Daniel chapter 4. And in Daniel chapter 4... Notice what it says here in verse uh, 4. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. 
As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind, they terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. Does this sound familiar? What what does it sound like? Where have we seen this before? Deja vu. Daniel chapter 2. It's the cycle. You know, and when we don't follow God, we just fall in these cycles and these patterns that we just find ourselves at, at, at the place where we first got started. He already had a dream that terrified him that he didn't understand in Daniel chapter 2. He calls the astrologers to interpret it. They can't interpret him. Daniel comes and interpreting. It's a message from God. Here in Daniel chapter 4 again, he has a dream. He doesn't understand it. He's back at square one. Without God, my friends, we will run in circles in our lives. We will run in cycles. God is trying to break us out of our dysfunctional cycles. Why won't we let him? So Daniel tells him the dream. He sees the tree. Uh, He sees that the tree is cut down. An iron band is placed around that tree trunk. And as he interprets that dream, he says, uh, this this dream, Daniel Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, this dream is for your enemies because your kingdom will be taken away from you. You will be like the wild beast for seven years until you acknowledge God. And in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 27, Daniel makes an appeal to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, therefore, your majesty, verse 27, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right. And your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Nebuchadnezzar has had experiences with God, supernatural experiences with God. He's seen unbelievable things. He's seen things we haven't seen. And yet he has not surrendered his life to God. And Daniel is making a final appeal. Renounce your sins. Renounce your oppression. Be kind to the oppressed. Perhaps then God will turn and relent. And so 12 months later, 12 months later, verse 28, a whole year passes and nothing has happened. You see, God is long suffering and he's merciful. God doesn't want to punish us. God doesn't want to have to discipline us. But sometimes when God delays his judgment on us, we take it to mean that he forgot. God doesn't forget and so in verse 28, 12 months after, there is, there is King, King Nebuchadnezzar walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. I mean, just imagine that. I mean, look at that. I mean, if you had single-handedly done that yourself and you had built that amazing city, this unbelievable city, I mean, wouldn't you stand there and say, man, this is, this is amazing. And in verse 30, he said, this is, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. There's that word glory again. Revelation 14, fear God and give him glory for my glory. And as he's sitting there boasting in his arrogance and in his pride and in his hubris, the word of the Lord comes down to him and says, you will be driven from men and you will be driven to beasts for seven years. And it takes Nebuchadnezzar seven years with a broken mind, stripped of his dignity, stripped of his wealth, stripped of his respect, stripped of everything that he had. It takes him seven years. You know, and when when your mind breaks, if I can even use that word, when you go crazy, 
I mean, in our society, when our mind breaks, we put those people uh, behind in an institution. But when you see people who have a broken mind, it is awkward. It, it is scary. It is frightful. And God takes everything away from him. And it is only by taking everything away from him that Nebuchadnezzar finally acknowledges God and aligns his life to God. Verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and I glorified Him who lives forever and ever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases. With the powers of heaven and with the peoples of the earth, no one can hold back His hand or say to Him, What have you done? In verse 36, at that same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and my splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles, they sought me out and I was restored to my throne and I became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and I exalt and I glorify who? The king of heaven. Because everything he does is right. And all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. God wants to speak to us in blessing. God doesn't want to punish us. God doesn't doesn't want to take things away from us. He wants to give things to us. But isn't it oftentimes the only way we'll listen is not in blessing, but only in adversity and in pain. It's only when we hit rock bottom. It's only when he strips everything away, then that's when we finally say, God, help me. God, what is it that you want for me and for my life? Why do we have to be stubborn and pride and arrogant? Why can't we just do what God says? Why can't we just be faithful to him? Why can't we just fear him and worship him? Pride, my friends, is everywhere. It is an innate human problem. Pride runs in our DNA. We received it when we believed the devil in Eden. Pride is a characteristic of Satan himself. Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 17 describing Lucifer. It says, you were perfect in all your ways until iniquity was found in you. For because of your beauty, your heart was lifted up. In Isaiah chapter 14, describing Lucifer, it says, And I will ascend to the, most high, to the heights of the Most High. I will place my throne above the stars of God. I will do this, and I will do that. Pride is in our DNA. Satan's character is now stamped in ours. But why can't we just humble ourselves and acknowledge God in our lives and be faithful to Him? Men, can I speak to you? Studies indicate that men, for whatever reason, men tend to have in a disproportionate sense of self-esteem. Disproportionate sense of self-esteem. Whereas women tend to be more modest in how they see themselves. They tend to be more realistic in how they view themselves. 
Men, even though we're not, we think we are. God is calling all of us to humble ourselves before Him. He doesn't want to strip anything away from us. But why wait until He does to finally acknowledge Him? Let us humble ourselves this morning before God, and He will lift us up. This podcast is brought to you by the Jacksonville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. Connect with them at www.jaxsda.org or on Facebook and YouTube. We look forward to sharing more inspiring messages with you.